We've been going through the book of Hebrews, and we're looking at, it's called by many people the, the heroes of the faith, this chapter, Hebrews 11. And uh, this weekend, we want to look at uh, J, uh, Jep, uh, Jephthah. And Jephthah is an interesting character because he basically offers his daughter as a sacrifice to God. And he's in Hebrews 11. And you go, how is that possible? <laughs> it doesn't seem like the bar is very high to get in Hebrews 11 if that's the kind of people that get in there. So we want to look at uh, his life and we say, well, what, do, what do we learn from him? And what is it go, what's going on in his life? And how can we best understand some of the things that, uh, that are going on with him? So what do we know about Jephthah? Um, if you want to follow along with me, we're in Judges chapter 11. This is on page 200. We have these chair Bibles. If you go to page 200, you can follow along with me. I'm going to read the first 11, uh, seven verses. And I'm just going to kind of give you a little background so that you can kind of, we can get an understanding, begin our discussion. But as we see, one of the things we see about his background, it's, it's just formative. I mean, there's stuff going on in his background that leads him to be the person he is, as the same is true in our lives, too. Some good, some bad. Judges chapter 11. Jephthah was a Gileite and was a mighty warrior. His father was Gilead. His mother was a prostitute. Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when they were grown up, they, dro uh, they drove Jephthah away. You are not going to get your in any inheritance in our family, they said, because you are a son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and settled in the land of Tob, where a gang of scoundrels gathered around him and, he fo and followed him. Sometime later, when the Ammonites uh, were fighting against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to uh, get Jephthah from the land of Tob. Come, they said, be our commanders so that we can fight the Ammonites. Jephthah said to them, didn't you hate me and drive me from my father's house? Why do you come to me now? when you're in trouble. So what do we learn about Jephthah? He's, he's an Ill, illegitimate... Th By the way, I think sometimes Hollywood goes to the Bible to get their scripts for their shows. Just saying. But Jephthah was an illegitimate son, and uh, his brothers from, his, uh, from another mother basically say, you're not getting in the inheritance. They drive him out. He begins... He joins a gang, he becomes a pirate or a, a gang a boss or a warrior, um, a bandit, something along those lines. But he has his men, his mighty men, right? His warriors. And so then later on in life, they come to him and they say to him, um, listen, we have a problem. We have this, this group of people that call the Ammonites, and they have been harassing us for the last 18 years. And we can't seem to do anything against them. We need your help. And so he immediately, and you know, the party that comes to him, I'm absolutely convinced that some of the members from his old hometown are his stepbrothers. And they're coming to him with their tails, you know, like, you know, we need your help. Can you help us out? And it would be very easy for him to say, you know what? I remember a number of years ago when you kind of weren't very nice to me. Why in the world should I help you out? 
But you know, one of the things that we'll see with Jephthah, this was what molded him and made him into be the leader that he's kind of affirmed in the book of Hebrews. He dealt with rejection. He dealt with hardship. And early in life, and he became a shrewd negotiator, and he became a mighty warrior. And those are two things that are going to serve him well as you read through the story of Jephthah. But the point I want you to see is this, and I think this is where we stop and just kind of say, what does this have to do with us? The first thing is that sometimes we look at the way that we have been hurt by others or the we didn't get a fair shake or things didn't go the way we wish they would have. And uh, many times that's absolutely true. But you know, the bottom line is God can take those hurts, those hard times, those difficult situations, and he can turn them around for his glory. And he can use them in powerful ways in your life. He can produce character. He can produce a lot of great things in your life. And, you know, that's kind of what he's doing in a sense with Jephthah. And that's what he can do with us. Um, God is sovereign over that whole process. So even your failures, even when people have done hurtful things to you, you can, you can uh, live as a person who's marked by those things and is a victim of those things. Or you can say, you know what, that was, that was true. I'm not going to deny that happened. I made that a mistake. I sinned. I did that. I'm responsible for that. Or um, I realize that person hurt me. They've they done te- you know, terrible things. But the bottom line is, as I move forward, God, that wasn't a surprise to God. He can throw that all together and he can make me into the person he wants me to be and use those things in a positive way. So uh, I'm just applying that to our lives. So he begins, he, he basically could have said, no, you know, go back home, see you later, don't have time. Um, he could have robbed him, he could have done a whole bunch of things. But he doesn't. He basically decides that he's going to help them out. So he begins to negotiate with the Ammonites. So he, like I said, he's become not just a great warrior, but a negotiator. And he negotiates really on three levels. The first one is he negotiates with the Ammonite leaders, and he basically says to them, historically, the land was never yours. As Israel passed into the land, they'd, from time to time, they would ask for permission to go through certain uh, regions that were controlled by different people groups. And oftentimes, they'd say, no, we're not going to let you go through, and so sometimes they would attack Israel, and Israel would, you know, take them, and so, the spoils of war, they would take that portion of land. So Israel, basically, a lot of the land that, they, that is, being, is, is in question right now is land that they, were con- that they conquered. It, it came to them. The second thing is, it's kind of an interesting argument he brings here, and this is kind of a little bit of where, why he's in Hebrews 11. He basically says, Well, it's obvious that the God of Israel has given us the land. We couldn't have done it without his help. So God has given us this land. Now, who is your God? Oh, yeah, your God is Chemosh. It seems to me that Chemosh lost here, that he wasn't able to defend his land. So therefore, if, if we, our God was able to give us the land, then just call your God out and you know, the gods can have a little battle and we can decide whose God is God. That's his theological argument. His last argument is this one. He reminds them that, you know, the king of Moab has been there a long time and other kings have been there. We've been here for a long time and no one has ever brought this up, this ownership thing. 
They've always assumed, rightly, that it's our land, not theirs. And um, all of a sudden now, it's, you're making this claim. So he makes those three arguments, and he basically says, you know, you have no justifiable claim for the land. You don't have a historical claim. You don't have a theological claim. And you, don't, you just don't have a, a, a history claim. It's just, I mean, it's, just not, it's not your land. Um, so that's a little bit about his past and how he was just kind of had this different upbringing. Now, let's talk a little bit about his faith. And this is where we talk about how does he, how does he get into the book of Hebrews? Well, his faith was eclectic. <laughs> That's probably the best word I can use for it. Uh, look, at, look at what it says in Judges eleven twenty three. 23. And I think this is where we see kind of the, the most developed part of his faith, if we could say that. I think we think of faith sometimes as black and white. You either have it or you don't have it. And, and hopefully through this series you've seen that faith is really one of those things that fluctuates with people and with times. And it's not always a rock-solid growth graph. It's just kind of wavers sometimes. And sometimes it's not fully developed. And, but notice what it says. This is uh, Judges eleven twenty three. Now, since the Lord, the God of Israel, has driven the Ammonites, Amorites excuse me, out before his people Israel, what right have you to take it over? Will, not you, will you not take what your God, Shemesh, gives you? Likewise, whatever the Lord our God has given us, we will possess. <coughs> so he has this mixed bag view of God. Um, he was raised in a culture that, that worshipped various gods. The land was just filled with gods and, and various beliefs. He had a very rudimentary and incomplete view of who Jehovah was, who Yahweh was, who the God of Israel was. In that day, it was common to mix and match the gods in belief. So, so we have to understand that we, when, you know, we say, well, we're Christians, we believe in God, and, 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 and uh, we have this solid theological... In that day, there was a whole bunch of mixing and matching. And by the way, people do that all the time today. We do that today. Many people don't know the real Christmas story or the real Easter story. When we talk about Christmas, what do we talk about? Well, we talk about Frosty. We talk about reindeers. We talk about Santa. But when we talk about the birth of Jesus, we go, yeah, I guess that's part of it too, right? Well, what do those other parts have to do with it? Well, really nothing. Or we talk about Easter. What do we talk about in Easter? We talk about Easter bunnies or Easter eggs. But when we talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, people say, oh, yeah, I guess that happened too. When in reality, those are the, the essential elements of those holidays. But when you, if you think about it in your family, how much time and how much effort do you put in defining that for your children? And how is that kind of, how does that play out? Or do you spend more time with the, the, I guess, the other things that go with it. Um, so I was recently talking to a pastor. This, this is kind of, to me, it's going to sound like a, it's going to sound silly, but it's, it's absolutely true. Um, and I think it's much more reflective of our culture than we want to admit. So I was talking to a pastor recently, and he, he was telling me that he got a call from a woman and her mother had died, and her mother had been cremated. And 
the, she said to this uh, friend of mine, she said, uh, so pastor, uh, my mother wants, I need to know where there's a river where I can spread her ashes. And he says, well, I think if you go to this place, you'll find some falls and a river where you can, you know, off the bridge, you can spread her ashes. And I don't know whether he asked why or, you know, what's the point or what, she may have just given it up, I don't know. She says, well, she was afraid of water. And he said, what? He says, no, she was afraid of water. So she, was, she thought that if, our, we, if I dumped her ashes on the water, excuse me let, me, let me say it a nice way, spread her ashes on the water, that when she came back in the next life, she wouldn't be afraid of water. Okay, that is so messed up. I don't even know where we... Be and this is a Christian woman. And we say, we're not eclectic. We don't have kind of mix and mash of beliefs. It's, it's all over. I mean, um, it's absolutely... You, you just have to watch Jay Leno used to do this. He'd go out and talk about real just specific things about our, our history of our country or about religious topics. And people were all over the place. It was so eclectic, it's unbelievable. So I just thought of throw mama in the river, and I don't know why I thought of that. Sorry. Um, yeah, it's just those thoughts going to my head. Um, so what we're going to see is these, these people, especially in Judges, they're like all over the place, and their faith is not like, we can't look at it like, oh, we, it's so much ra more radical, it's so much, it's weird, it's strange, it's odd, uh, because they had limited information, and we have been given so much more. All of these people had major spiritual flaws, and you saw it, Samson had obviously uh, flaws, and you see some of these judges, they all had flaws. And, but, but, and they are at very different places. They had not arrived. And that's the point. We're not talking about people who have their faith perfected. We're talking about people who are spiritually struggling, I guess. And when you talk about their faith, it's like, really? That's the best example you can come up with? And when we talk about the book of Judges, we're talking about one of the worst spiritual times for the nation of Israel. I mean, it's not a good time at all. It's really not. Many of these people are trying to understand, though, who God was. And in the book of Judges, <laughs> the going is really, really rough. So it would be a mistake to think that, that they should believe and act like us. Um, when they had much less revelation, much less information. We have, we have the Word of God today. We have the, we have the Bible. We, we know about Jesus. We know about... We have so much more information than they had. They, had, they have nothing compared to us. So the question is, why was his faith included, and why was he included and worthy of Hebrews 11? One of the things that we can say, and it's very clear about Jephthah, is he absolutely believed that God could give the victory over the Ammonites. Uh, he was willing to, put, to pit Yahweh, the Hebrew God, against their gods. So his faith was in Yahweh, not necessarily in his troops. And so he had this faith in God, this trust in God. So Jephthah attempted the impossible because he believed Yahweh could enforce the land claim and God would give him the victory. His, he demonstrated a single act of faith for which he's listed in the book of, of Acts, or Hebrews. It's not a big thing, but it's, it's a thing, okay? 
He is there because he's demonstrating faith in God, faith in Yahweh, all right? And the question is, how much more should we demonstrate? I mean, we, it's very easy for us to be critical of Jephthah. We, we, can, we can say, well, I don't really think, you know, I don't think he was a Christian. I mean, well, he wasn't because Christianity didn't begin until the New Testament. But that being said, um, we could be very critical of his faith. But uh, how much more should we demonstrate faith? We know so much more than Jephthah. Uh, and I believe we will be held to a higher level of accountability than, than Jephthah because we have much more revelation, much more information. So the question I have for you is this. How much more does God need to reveal about himself before you really will believe and trust in him? Well, you'll stop worrying about those things. You'll stop trying to control everything in your life that you can't control. You'll, stop, you'll start believing him that he is uh, the source of everything for you. Because we don't live that way, do we? We live as worried, defeated, uh, fretful people, don't we? We don't live as people of hope. We don't live as people with faith. And so we can be very harsh with a person like Jephthah and say he should have had a stronger faith. Yet we have, we have much more information than he does. And yet we often, ask, we often act as though God doesn't exist. In, in our day-to-day lives. Well, let's look at his vow because that's one of the things that uh, really uh, he's known for, and it's uh, foolish. <laughs> Judges chapter 11, verse 29. Um, let me read it to you. So this is be- right before he's ready to go to battle, okay? And he makes a vow to God. Then the Spirit of, God, uh, Spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah. Now let me just say this about the Spirit of the Lord. The Bible says that when you become a follower of Jesus Christ, the Spirit of the Lord doesn't just come on you. It's, he dwells within you. You have the constant indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That's not the case of the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit came upon the Old Testament saints, different saints, from time to time. And it was a short-term type of a thing. Uh, it wasn't a long-term indwelling. All right, He, he crossed Gilead and Manasseh. And passed through Mizpah of Gilead. And from there he advanced against the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. If you give me the Ammonites into my hands, whoever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites, will be the Lord's and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Now, the Bible doesn't commend his vow. It doesn't say, well, that's a good vow. That's a good idea. Good, good faith there. No, he doesn't do it. We need to understand the Bible doesn't comment on his vow. It just repeats it. And oftentimes the Bible does it. And that's one thing critics don't understand about the Bible. The Bible gives you the truth about people and about events, warts and all. It does it. It's, there's, no, there's no PR representative for the, the, the people of the Bible or the writers of the Bible. They tell you the good, the bad, and the ugly. And sometimes they just report something and they don't make a comment on it. And what the critics tend to do is saying, well, look it, it says, the Bible says that. But that, just because the Bible reports it doesn't mean that the Bible's saying, okay, good thing. No, it's not. That's not what's going on. So uh, it's, not, it's neither commending him for it 
or report. It's just reporting what he did. And so we need to, we need to remember that we don't confuse the two. The two. Lack of editorial comment for support of his actions. This was a foolish vow. Absolutely foolish. And it cost his daughter his life. Now, why would he do this? Why in the world would he do this? Well, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of uh, ways that Christians and commentators have taken this. They've said, for instance, well, he assumed that an animal was going to come walking out of his house. Sheep or a goat or something along those lines. Well, it's about as likely as a sheep or a goat walking out your house. I mean, probably that's, that wasn't the case. And some people say, well, he actually didn't say that he would, uh, you know, as you read through the story, he, he, when, he, when his daughter came out, uh, basically what he was doing was he was offering her to be a perpetual virgin. She would serve in the, in the, near the tabernacle for the rest of her life. She would never marry and have, never have children. And that was what, yeah, no, I don't think that's the case. I think he basically offered her as a sacrifice, human sacrifice. How do you get to that place? How do you get to that place? He has an incomplete and perverted view of God. Not only that caused him to make the vow, but it pushed him to keep the vow after God gave him the victory. He felt though as though he made the vow not knowing who would come out the door, and he was aghast when his daughter, his only daughter, walks out the door to greet him after the victory. So he's at a place now where he's afraid to give in or say, you know, I'm not going to do it because he's afraid that he will, he's appeased the gods. You know, and again, he's got faith in Yahweh, but he's also got this, these other gods, and he's not sure about Yahweh yet, who Yahweh is. And so if, he, if Yahweh is vindictive, the God of Israel is vindictive, then he's afraid that if he doesn't keep the vow, it's not going to be a good thing for, for him or his people. So he keeps the vow. Now, um, again, I think he has an incomplete and perverted view of God. Um, it not only caused him to make the vow, but it caused him to keep the vow. Jephthah had, had yet to understand the grace and mercy of God. He believed that he had to appease him and offer something to exchange in exchange for the va- battle victory. And by the way, people do that today. There's a whole bunch of people that are going to go to church this weekend. They're going to give their money. They're going to serve. They're going to do whatever they think the church has told them to do or they think they need to do because they think they need to appease God. They need to do their own to make it. And uh, so we're not that different than Jephthah. That being said, before we go out, Get our light our torches and play judge, jury, and executioner. Let's remember we are not without blame. We may be appalled by his actions, but we don't understand his culture and his time. And it's easy for us to go back. By the way, that's happening today in our history, right now, contemporarily. There are things today that were done 50 years ago that our parents would look at and say, it's, it's not good, but it's not a big deal. And this generation is looking in aghast at those things. Okay? And I'll tell you this. In 50 to 100 years, there's some things we're doing now that they will look at us and say, how in the world could educated people do and say some of those things? 
because we're historically snobs. But here's, here's, here. So we say, how in the world could a father offer his daughter as a sacrifice? How could he do it? And you say, what kind of man, what kind of person would do that? What kind of person would, 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 would do human sacrifice and call themselves a Christian? In America, according to the CDC, this is 2014, we clinically murdered 650,000 innocent babies, 12 for every 1,000 women, sons and daughters, every year. We justify our actions because we call it a medical procedure. I don't think we have the high moral ground here. We are more sophisticated than Jephthah, but we are still guilty. We offer these babies to the gods of personal choice and freedom. Yeah, we aren't really very good judges of moral character, I don't think. Murder is murder. Well, let's talk about his daughter because she is kind of an interesting character, and I think she's terribly symbolic in this. Look at what happens. Uh, Jeb, uh, this is uh, Judges chapter 11, verse 34. When Jephthah returned home in Mizpah, who should come out and meet him but his daughter, dancing to the sound of timbrels? <coughs> she was an only child. Except for her, he had neither son nor daughter. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and cried, Oh no, my daughter. You have brought me down, and I am devastated. I made a vow to the Lord, Yahweh, that I cannot break. Notice her reply. My father, she replied, you have given your word to the Lord due to me, just as you promised. Now that the, the Lord has avenged you and your enemies, the Ammonites, but grant me this one request. Give me two months to roam the hills and weep with my friends, because I will never marry. And then some say, because that last phrase, that she was going into temple service and she would never marry and have children. I don't believe that. I think he murdered her. But what's interesting to me is the willingness of the daughter to yield herself to the father's wishes resemble another child. Do you remember when Abraham was told to take his son Isaac to a, to a, a, a mountain? Take him to, to this mountain. And, and, and as they're walking up the mountain, the son says, Father, we have the fire, and, and, and we have the knife, but where is the sacrifice? And Abraham says, God will provide the lamb. Now, what's interesting there is Abraham is an old man. Isaac is a young man. So, there was a point where Abraham had to tie his son up. And Isaac isn't an idiot. He's not sitting there. What are we doing? He's laying on an altar and his father is tying him up. He can overpower his father at any moment, but he doesn't. And in a similar way, we see this is a picture of Abraham offering Isaac. We see the daughter of Jephthah. Basically saying, not, not complaining, but just saying, Father, if you've made the vow, we need to keep the vow. Again, we have this eclectic religious belief going on in this time. 
But the point I want you to see is Jephthah is offering his only child. Abraham is offering his only son of promise. But there's another. She is innocent and suffered for the fate of a careless, misguided vow. God didn't require her sacrifice at all. In fact, I'm sure he was appalled and saddened by it. But Jesus was the only son who willingly offered himself to pay for our careless, rebellious sins. He took the punishment we deserve. He gave his life so that we could be forgiven. He was the one and only son of the Father who willingly went to the altar of the cross for us and gave his life for us. He was innocent. He who knew no sin became sin for us, right? And so he went to the cross for you and for me because it was our sin. It was our rebellion that caused this. In fact, Paul says that in Romans chapter 5. Since we now have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved, shall we be saved from the, God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life? So we see that picture of that, that one, that innocent one who is being punished for the guilty. Jesus is the ultimate one, the ultimate innocent one who is punished for the guilty ones, you and me. And that's what the cross talks about. But it doesn't just say that, that he was punished for our sins. It says that he rose so that as he rose, we are forgiven. We have life. We have hope. So where are you today? Where are you? Uh, where is your faith? You know, faith is one of those things that, again, it's, uh, it's not how much you have, it's where you place it. And there are a lot of people in this community, they're placing their faith in themselves. I'll do, I'll do more, I'll try harder, I'll work at it, I'll... The gospel says, no, 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 no. Put your faith not in yourself. Put your faith in God. Put your faith in Jesus. Put your faith in the cross. Because when you put your faith in the cross, you find a Savior who willingly came. The only son who gave his life willingly. And so Jephthah's daughter is a picture of Jesus Christ. The final one who would come and give his life once and for all. For those who are sinners who desperately need a savior. So we could be uh, judgmental of Jephthah. We can learn from him. But we can learn a couple of things. Number one, we can learn about faith. Faith is maybe small, but it's where we place it. Jephthah sh certainly showed that. We can learn the lesson of our past and realize that God takes our lives and he weaves them together. And we don't always see, very rarely, sometimes some of us, God has pulled up the rug and shown us the other side that he's creating, we say, oh, I get it. It makes sense. But sometimes we don't think that God is in control and he doesn't have a plan. He does have a plan. God can take our mistakes, our failures, our sins, and turn them around for good. He can also take the hurts and the pains and the tragedies that we, and he can turn them around for good. But again, we have to place our faith in him. Otherwise, we just are randomly going through life, not understanding whether we're just a ball and a pinball machine.
I guess we should talk about vows, huh? Jesus discussed that in the Sermon on the Mount, where he said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Don't make promises. Don't swear on your mother or swear on this or swear on that. Let your word be good. And don't think, understand grace, that there's nothing that you can do and there's nothing that, you, that, that God desires of you. His grace isn't based upon what you have done or what you bring to the table. It is a free gift. You don't deserve it. You don't earn it. You'll never repay it. It's a gift. That's what Paul tells us in Ephesians. For by grace you are saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Stand with me. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you that we can learn from Jephthah. And thank you that we can see how grace is so important and not understanding it is so destructive. Help us to understand that uh, our faith needs to be placed squarely in you and that we need to remember your grace, your mercy, is what we desperately need. Without it, we are dead. Help us to understand, Father, the ultimate, the ultimate one who came, the innocent one, the only son who willingly gave his life for the guilty. And because he didn't just die, but he rose again on the third day, as he lives, so too will we who place our faith in him. Thank you for the hope that brings us. Thank you for the encouragement. Father, I don't know if there are people here this weekend who feel like their lives have gone terribly the wrong way and there's no hope. Show them hope, Father. Show them that you can take anyone and turn their life into a beautiful thing. That you can turn it around that you can set them free, that you can give them hope. And thank you, Father, that you're working on each and every one of us. And we are all flawed. We all have blind spots. We all have issues in our lives. No one has arrived. But thank you that when we come to you honestly and openly and allow you, through your Holy Spirit who dwells within us, to work on our lives you could do amazing things. So, Father, may we yield to your spirit this weekend, maybe in one area that we have not yielded up till now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.